Um, I, I want to talk to you about seeking the Lord, but let me preface it by this, and let me go pastoral just for a moment on you, if I could. Uh, if I was to say that there's kind of a prophetic word that I think the Lord has for the church today, and again, if you were to really kind of cut me to the core and find out what I'm all about, ultimately, uh, I want to see revival in cities. I want to see revival in nations. I want to see an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I want to see an awakening hit. Uh, this is what we've been pursuing for 20 years. I want to see an awakening hit a nation and, and people awakened by the love and the power of God. And, and, I, and I'm, a, I'm a die-hard, firm believer in the local church. I very much believe that God wants to use the vehicle, that he uses the vehicle of the local church to see these things happen. But one of the words that I really believe that God is wanting to just prophetically declare and scream over the church right now is these two simple words, personal responsibility. It's very intriguing to me how we, we have a mandate on us that the body of Christ has a mandate to disciple nations, the body of Christ has a mandate to see transformation and souls saved and, and all this type of stuff. But, but, we, but we all kind of know, like we are not operating at the fullness of what we should be in nations. We're not operating at the fullness of what we should be in cities. And one of the reasons why is I think that we've lost a little bit of this concept of personal responsibility as believers. The church has been set up and structured in such a way where somehow we've communicated that, that it's not your responsibility to do what Jesus called you to do. We think somehow, we, we somehow want, want leaders to, or the church, to kind of do for us what God's called us to do. And, and we, this shows up in a lot of ways, of, but, but we somehow have this concept, and it's amazing, again, I'm in church plant mode, so you'll hang with me on this, but, but two and a half years in a church plant, it's amazing as people came into the church, not all of them are, you know, they're not all unsaved coming to the church. Like there are believers coming in who have been to church for years and coming and checking things out. It's amazing how as believers come in, they kind of, they're looking for leadership to build a structure that will live out their Christian life for them. So, so when you got saved, you became a follower of Jesus. I'm following Jesus now. I'm a disciple of Jesus. And as a disciple of Jesus, there are things that he asks of me. These are, these are not the supernatural lifestyle. It's just the normal Christian life. The normal Christian life is, hey, as a follower of Jesus, pray. As a follower of Jesus, pray for the sick. As a follower of Jesus, take care of the poor. Take care of the widows and orphans. As a follower of Jesus, you know, be generous. Uh, disciple people, share your faith, get into community and, and, and let people into your life. These are just, this is just the normal Christian life. And it's amazing to me as followers of Jesus how we somehow think that that is somebody else's responsibility to do. And one of the reasons why we're not seeing impact at the level we should be in cities because legitimately we think somebody else is doing this or somebody else is actually supposed to do what God's called me to do. Again, the, the it's very interesting to me how like, again, I, I wanna talk to you about something else, but this is my preface. This will just be my introduction. In Ephesians 4, it says that the leadership government, the, the leadership structure of the church, apostles, prophets, pastors, evangelists, teachers, they've been given to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, the normal Christian life, to edify, encourage the body of Christ, 
so that we would become a mature man, so that we would grow up, so that we would come into the fullness of Christ and no longer be children. That's, that's paraphrasing that passage. And so somehow we think that, uh, that, the, that the leadership, the gifts that God's given us, that they're actually supposed to be doing for us what we're called to do. And we kind of come into the church with this concept. Uh, the, 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 the funny, this longer story I won't tell right now, but, but my, my wife, my wife, uh, I didn't grow up like this, but my, my family is a dog family. Like they, we have dogs and my family loves these dogs. And I didn't grow up in a type of family where dogs are part of the family, like siblings, like legitimately where you're going to get them Christmas presents and you're getting them Valentine's Day presents. And it's weird to me. I'm like, what? This is the honest truth. One of our dogs, a golden retriever, his name is Dash. He just turned five. And my 18-year-old daughter, who has been discipled by my wife, <laughs> said, uh, said uh, Dash is turning five and we are doing a birthday party for him. And I'm like, sweetie, we're not doing a birthday party for him. That is stupid. Yes, we are, Dad. Yes, we are. And I can't get this girl to do anything, right? But she spent all day long making dog-friendly cupcakes. And then she got on the phone and she called all of our friends that have dogs and invited them over for a dog party. And the whole time I'm like, this is dumb. We're not doing this. This is stupid, you know? And she had all of, the, all of the dogs came over and all the people came with their dogs and they all went in the backyard and they all were playing. And then all of a sudden they said, all right, cupcake time. And they all brought the cupcakes out with like a, a, a candle in one and they started singing happy birthday to Dash. And I refused to, I'm like, I'm not singing to this is stupid. And I just sat there in a chair with my arms folded in defiance of the, and they're like, we are singing happy birthday. And so this is the type of family that I grew up in right now. And and my wife loves this one dog, Dash. I mean, she really loves this dog. Like, like if I asked her to choose between me or Dash, she would choose me because we have made a covenant before God together. But it would take her a few minutes to get there. It's one of those. Like, it would just take her a little bit. She would get there. It would just take her a moment to get there, you know? So when we first got Dash, he was a horrible. He just chewed through everything and, like, he chewed through everything, ripped up the backyard, ripped up the carpet, ate every shoe. It was, it could, we couldn't open the door unless he was gone. The door would be open. We're like, shut the door! Because if the door was open for any length of time, dog's gone. And he wouldn't walk on a leash. You'd walk him. And, and for a half a mile, he would just choke himself the entire time. And it was embarrassing. And so finally I said, CJ, we've got to go. I, CJ, we've got to get this dog trained. This is out of control. And so I, I saw at PetSmart that you could take a dog training class for like $180. I'm like, done. Here's the check. I'm coming in. So I brought, I brought Dash in the first time to get the dog trained. And I, the, walking in, he's choking himself because he's like the whole way in. And I'm like, hey, hey, hey. And I, and I, and I sit down and he's like just coughing. And I'm like, finally, you know? And so, and the dog trainer, the lady comes out and there's like a class. And she starts the class and she, it, it, I noticed when she starts the class, she's talking to me. <laughs> it, was, it was honestly weird to me because I was like, why are you talking to me right now? I'm not the problem, my dog's the problem. <laughs> Fix my dog. 
and she kept talking to me, and I kind of like, okay, it's the first class. Maybe that's what you do, the first class. I came back to second class, and I noticed she kept talking to me. And I'm like, fix my dog. I paid $180 for you to fix my dog. I don't need you to fix me. I need you to fix my dog. And I quickly found out that dog training classes are not dog training classes, they are owner training classes. I didn't come back. I paid for like 10 sessions and went to two of them because I was so irritated. I'm like, fix my dog, that's what I want. But guys, like, welcome to the church. This is, this is the church. We kind of roll into church and we're like, hey, listen, uh, my Christian life, are you gonna do this for me? Like, I need you to do this for me. And I brought money. <laughs> so, so I pay money every week, and here's what I expect out of my apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher, and evangelist, is that you would do for me what Jesus has called me to do. That my Christian life, I need you to do. At least build a structure that does it for me. And, and we've lost the sense of personal responsibility. I'm telling you, one of the reasons why we're not seeing cities transformed is because the church, individual believers, have lost the concept of, guess whose responsibility to live my Christian life is? Me. It's amazing to me. People would come in, and because and, again, we plan the church, we didn't have much going on. It's like Sundays, and do a gathering every once in a while. We don't have small groups, we don't have any of that stuff. And people would come in, believers, and they'd be like, hey, uh, so how do I get plugged in around here? And I'd be like, uh, uh, I don't know, invite somebody over to your house for dinner. <laughs> and they literally were like, what? No, 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 I'm like, come on, where's your small groups? Where's your brochure that shows me how to get plugged in? Like, I don't, I don't have one. Like, just say yes when somebody invites you to Starbucks. And they were like, they were so lost over the fact that we hadn't built something for them to find community. It was astounding to me. I'm like, do we really not know how to find community unless I build something for you? Like, these weren't like brand new believers, but somehow it's the concept that, hey, hey, I guess I'm supposed to be in community. That's what Jesus asked of me. So like, what have you done to build something so I can get in community? And literally, I'm like, I don't know, invite some people over. Ah, uh, uh, really? You know, people might come up and be like, hey, my neighbor just got saved. Where's the new believers class? In your living room. <laughs> I mean, like, guess who the leader is? <laughs> and I commission you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to go lead your new believers class. Like, because the concept is, it's not my job to disciple your neighbor, it's your job to disciple your neighbor. It's my job to make sure you're equipped, it's my job to make sure you're encouraged, it's my job to make sure you're maturing, it's not my job to stop your neighbor. It's not even my job to share the gospel with your neighbor. I told our church on Sunday, I'm like, if you think, if you're bringing people to church so they can hear the gospel, we have a little bit of a problem. If the only place they're hearing the gospel it's from the stage on Sunday. But, so, but it's a sense of personal responsibility. It's amazing, people will come up, they're like, hey, so uh, what's our church doing for the poor? I don't know, what are you doing for the poor? 
I actually don't know because I'm not sure what everybody here is doing for the poor. And the concept has to be around this thing of like, if, if, if your church never had a program for the poor, would you still lean in as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, and say, what am I doing to take care of the poor, which is a mandate that Christ has given me as a follower? I met my church and my pastor, they don't even do anything for the poor. It's not actually his job to do something for the poor, it's his job to equip you to do something for the poor. Is everybody with me on this? Again, this is just my introduction. And there's a clock up there, but I'm not sure why. So, 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 so it's this type of thing, and what begins to happen is, and again, hang with me, because I want to talk to you about prayer tonight. But <laughs> this concept of, because what begins to happen is, God calls the body of Christ, individual believers, to lean in and to follow him in seeing cities impacted, people reached, culture transformed. And, and one of those things is prayer, but we're constantly thinking that somebody else is doing this and it's not my responsibility. And until a burden begins to fall on us individually that says, this is my responsibility, it is an ownership issue. One of the things that happens with personal responsibility Personal responsibility begins to move your life from an externally driven model to an internally driven model. So, so what happens is, we, we don't even realize it, but we are such an externally driven society. I go the speed limit because of external reasons. I, you know, I get good grades. I, 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 get, I, I work hard for an external reason. There's all these external things that motivate us. And then we come into the church and we realize that unless we begin to get a sense of personal responsibility and move from externally motivated to internally motivated, we're never gonna see transformation happen. The, this is the main difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant, the, the covenant of the law was an externally motivated covenant. So they would come and say, obey your parents. Well, what if I don't? We will stone you. <laughs> so, so it's an externally motivated covenant to obey your parents. The New Covenant, though, the New Covenant... The new covenant moves from an external model to an internal model of motivation. It's why the covenant of grace is a higher standard than the covenant of the law. And anybody that tells you grace is not a higher standard is lying to you. Because Jesus began to deal with internal realities, not external realities. So the, the covenant, the law says, do not commit, like do not sleep with that lady unless you're committing adultery. The new covenant, Jesus goes, don't lust after her unless you're committing adultery. It's a higher standard. The old covenant said, do not kill that person. The new covenant says, don't hate somebody unless you're murdering them. And the reason why there can be a higher standard is because the spirit of God, what the old covenant didn't have that the new covenant has is the spirit of God now resides in our life and is the thing that is motivating us, driving us, transforming us from the inside out. It's an internal motivation that begins to happen in our life. And that internal motivation begins to put a burden in our life. It's the spirit of God that begins to burden our life to pray 
to, to take care of orphans and widows, to share our faith, to disciple. To, it's all those things that the Spirit of God begins to drive us so that we can begin to follow Jesus effectively. Okay, is everybody tracking with me on this? And as long as we don't allow that burden of responsibility, I'm not talking a negative burden, I'm talking the burden of responsibility. It's, it's what we would say is the difference between a, a, a parent and a babysitter. A, a, again, a, a, my daughter, my daughter is a phenomenal, she's a really, she's 14 and she's a great babysitter. She's really good. She shows up to your house and, and she'll take great care of your kids. She'll do a good job, but she needs a couple things. One is, is she needs money. Two is she needs a list. So the parent leaves her list, make sure you feed them at this time, make sure you read them, make sure they get the homework done, make sure they get a bath and get to bed on time, brush their teeth. She does all that stuff great. But, but what a babysitter, what a parent has that a babysitter doesn't have is an internal burden because of that called love. Because of that, the parent doesn't need what the babysitter needs. Like, first of all, let me tell you this, if you're a parent, you're not making money, you're losing money. <laughs> Can I just say this right now? <laughs> You're losing money. This is not a money-making venture. <laughs> if you wanna make money, don't have kids because they don't make you money. So, so parents are losing money, first of all, but, but a parent doesn't need a list. A parent doesn't need a list. The reason why a parent doesn't need a list is, is there's an internal burden called love that, that moves them, that drives them to say, I'm gonna make sure you're loved. I'm gonna make sure you're fed. I'm gonna make sure you take a bath. I'm gonna make sure you go to bed on time. All of those things, it's love. It's the burden of love that begins to define for me what I need to be doing. And there's a sense of responsibility and ownership that a parent has that a babysitter doesn't have, even though they may look the same. There's a burden that begins to drive them. And this is one of the things, like I, can talk, I could talk to you about prayer tonight, but the reality is, until we begin to say, this is my responsibility, I need the Spirit of God to begin to put a burden in my life for this. I am not looking to anybody else to pray. I'm not looking for anybody else to take care of the poor. I'm not looking for anybody else to pray for the sick. This is what God's placed on my life. This is what I'm called to do. I'm not looking for somebody else to do what Jesus has called me to do. I don't need to come to church so that you'll build a structure for me to walk out my Christian life. I come to church because I want to be a part of a family and I want to get trained and equipped and I want to become mature and I want to get healthy and I want to be whole and I want to do life with people and I want to encourage and love. But I don't come so you can do my life for me. And cities go untouched because we think somebody else is doing it. When I was in college, in California, there's one highway that goes from the top of California to the bottom, Interstate 5, and, and Redding is right on Interstate 5, and then it goes all the way down to Orange County, which is 10 hours away. And I went to school in Orange County, and one day we were driving back to Redding, and it was my friend, it was his truck. So Pete was driving, and then I was sitting in the middle seat, and Steve was in the passenger seat. We drove, and uh, we were about an hour and a half away from Reading. We pulled over in this city called Williams, which is kind of where everybody gets gas before you get to Reading. And we pulled over, and we pulled up to the gas pump, and we get out. Pete goes in and pays for the gas. I go use the restroom. Steve's getting snacks and kind of finished all our stuff up there. And then we get in the car, and we take off. About 15 minutes away from Williams on the way to Reading, all of a sudden the truck just kind of lurches to a stop and quits right on the freeway. We kind of coast to the side. We're kind of sitting there, and I'm like, 
Pete, what, what, what's wrong with your truck? And he goes, I don't know, man, it's never done this before. I, my truck always runs great. And, and I look at the, the oil gauge, it's fine. I look at the heat, it's fine. And then I look at the gas gauge and it's not empty. And I turned to Pete, I said, Pete, did you put gas in the truck? He goes, no, I went inside and paid for it. I thought Steve was putting gas in the truck. We both look at Steve. Steve, did you put gas in the truck? Don't look at me, fellas. I thought Banny was putting it in. I was in getting snacks. I thought Banny was putting gas in the truck. They both look at me. They're like, don't look at me. I was in the bathroom. I thought Steve was putting it in, you know? I thought Pete was putting it in. And we'd actually pulled up to the gas station, pulled up to the pump, paid for the gas, got snacks, used the restroom, got in, left, never put gas in the truck. <laughs> Why are we not seeing cities transformed? <laughs> You know, it's like, hey, you're doing this, right? Are you doing this? You're, trans are, you're praying, right, for our city. I'm not praying for our city. I thought he was praying for our city. Hey, don't look at me. I'm not praying for our city. I thought he's, aren't you getting paid to pray for our city, pastor? What am I even bringing my tithe here for? It literally is this type of concept that we think that, well, somebody else is supposed to do this. No, guess who's supposed to do this? You. That's the, that's the Christian life. Lean in. And, and, and when you get that burden, when, when you really allow the Spirit of God to begin to burden your life for this stuff, all of a sudden you don't need a preacher to come up and give you one more exciting way to give and one more you know, you know, slick phrase that we have for this or that. You know, when it comes to my kids, do you know I don't need, I, I don't need any pastor to convince me, excite me, encourage, I, I don't need any of them to get me fired up to pray for my kids. I, I need you to equip me to pray for my kids. I wanna be effective in how I pray for my kids, but I don't need you to excite me about praying for my kids. I'm on my face before the Lord for my kids because of a burden in my life. That's the thing that we've gotta allow the Spirit of God to put in us for cities. I would say, God, I'm asking that you'd put a burden inside of me where I don't, I don't need a slick slogan of a season of prayer to show up to a prayer meeting. I wanna be there because this is what you've called me to do. And as I lean in, this is the things that you're asking of me as a believer. I very much believe that right now, God is, is beginning to awaken the church to seek him. Again, it's, it's, it's probably, it's just the normal Christian life to seek the Lord, but I really believe that the Lord is stirring the hearts of believers to seek him. There's a great book, in fact, Pastor Lee has it back there, but po quite possibly my favorite book on revival is a, is a book uh, that was written in 1956 by a guy named Arthur Wallace, who was one of the main fathers of the charismatic movement in the, in the United Kingdom. And he wrote a book called In the Day of Thy Power, which is kind of a study of both scriptural and modern day revivals. And this is what he says. Revival involves two awakening cries. This is, these are, these verses, these are referenced to verses in Isaiah. But revival involves two awakening cries. God crying to man, awake, awake, O Zion. And man crying to God, awake, awake, Put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of the old. When the voice of the Lord has awakened the church, 
The voice of the church will awaken the Lord. And the power of God will be made manifested in the saving of sinners. When it has seemed that for a long time the Almighty has slumbered, the cry of the church pierces the heavens, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. One of the most, one of the most concrete promises in all of Scripture is if you'll seek the Lord with all of your heart, you'll find him. It's repeated again and again. It's something that is very emphasized throughout Scripture, that if you'll seek the Lord with all of your heart, you'll find him. And, and, and the Father comes to us, and he begins to call us to seek him. But when he calls us to seek him, and this is David, when, when, you know, when you said, seek my face, your face will I seek. It's this, he comes and says, here's what I want from you. I want you to seek my face. I want you to pursue me. I want you to come after me in prayer. When you begin to hear that call, the response must be to seek him. And he begins to awaken your life for this reason. His voice comes and awakens you so that you can begin to respond and lift up your voice to awaken him. He, begin, he, he seeks you, he sought you and found you so that you could in turn begin to seek and find him. This is the flow, this is the relationship. And, and he does it as a father. And he stirs your heart to seek him because he intends to be found by you. This is the simplicity of the strategy that God has for cities. Stir the hearts of his kids because when you have a heart to seek him, it's because he wants to be found. Hide and go seek as a dad is an extremely different experience than as a kid. It's very interesting. When I was in junior high, we used to play hide and go seek all the time. And we actually, we got pretty intense with it because there was like, they were building, my house was at the end of a street. And then they began to take all of these fields and develop them and put neighborhoods in. So for years, we just had like these frames and empty houses and ditches that they were digging. And so my friends and I would go out at night and we'd play hide and go seek for hours. And, and the goal as a junior high kid, the goal of hide and go seek was to never be found. That was the goal. So it'd be camo and, and paint your face and you'd go find a ditch and like cover yourself in rock and dirt and brush and just lay there. And the goal was that your friends, they would get so discouraged, so hopeless, so dejected, so uh, they would just completely give up and go home. That was the goal. And when they got that discouraged and that hopeless, you know I won, like that was the goal. Can you imagine if that was the goal of a dad playing hide and go seek? Can you imagine if my kids were little, they'd come and go, Dad, you want to play hide and go seek? You sure you want to? I'm pretty good. <laughs> I'm just saying. Uh, a lot of kids went home crying, trying to look for me. You sure you want? You sure you want to go out? Are you sure? I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine if they go and they're like, all right, one, two, three, and I go get, you know, camel and paint my face and brush and go find a hole, and, and they go looking for me, and hours later they can't find me, and they come home to mom and like, we can't find him. And like, I'm telling you, kids, he's pretty good. He's just a ghost. He's gone, you know? Can you? No, like, as a, as a dad, the goal of hide-and-go-seek, completely different now. Completely different. Can we play hide-and-go-seek, dad? You bet. They go one, two, three. And then I go find like literally the, just the worst possible hiding spot you can, you know, some couch. And then just to make sure I do this. 
and my, my kids think I'm horrible at this game because of that. They're like, ready or not, here we come. His leg is sticking out from behind the couch. Dad sucks at this game. Be because the best part of hide and go seek as a father is when I'm found. They come, they find me, I love it, it's the best part. And they think I'm horrible at the game, but they don't know how good I really am. When God comes in it, and I, I would tell you this right now that, that, that many of you in this room, you can't explain it, but there's just a, a stirring that's begun to happen in your heart. You feel a fresh hunger beginning to rise. You, you just feel like, I don't know what it is, but there's something happening inside of me. God is stirring your heart. He's inviting you to seek him. And the reason he's inviting you to seek him is because he intends to be found by you. He never stirs our hearts so we seek him and don't find him. This is the most concrete promise. If you'll seek the Lord with all of your heart, you'll find him. And it's attached to kids seeking their dad. When Jesus came, one of the main revelations he released was that God is a father. This was revolutionary. They wanted to stone him because of this concept. I mean, the, the Jews believed in God. But, but he, was, he was creator. And you did not have a casual relationship with him like a father-son type deal. You wouldn't say his name. You wouldn't write his name. There was, there was this, this kind of thing around that you'd never do that. And Jesus shows up. He's like, hey, guys, God's like a father. You can connect with him like that. And they, they just didn't understand it. They thought it was blasphemy. And he'd say, uh, he called himself a son of God. And, and he would say things like, you can, you know, Abba Father, which is pretty much Daddy God. The thought of calling him Daddy God was just like, but Jesus came and here's, uh, uh, study, study prayer that Jesus taught. He was consistently tying the concept of prayer with the revelation of God as a father. Constantly. He was constantly saying, listen, you have to understand, if somebody comes and asks the Father for a bread, he's not gonna give him a stone, how much more will your heavenly Father? And he's constantly attaching the character and nature of God as a Father, and that you can relate to him as a Father to the concept of prayer. Because our ability to seek him is connected to understanding, I am a son, I am a daughter, and I am in pursuit of a Father that loves to be found that wants to be found, that stirs my heart to find him, and that my life moves the heart of God. My life moves God's heart. He is influenced by me. I have, I have influence with God because I'm his kid. That's why our confidence in prayer is from this. Our confidence in prayer is this. He told me to seek him and I'm his son and he, and he hears me. This is what separates him. This is what separates, Isaiah says this. You know what separates God from every other God? We've never even heard of a God besides him who acts for those who wait for him. Those who seek him, he is moved to action by them. This is a whole revelation. They're like, you know what makes God different from every other God? Is that he actually responds to those who seek him. And we understand as sons and daughters that my heart moves him. 
My heart absolutely moves God. You know, they always tell you that whenever you have your first kid, you're gonna have a deeper understanding of the revelation of the Father. And, and when people kind of tell you that, you're like, yeah, okay, all right, whatever. You know, it's kind of, it feels kind of degrading, like, okay, so I don't have a revelation of the Father because I don't have kids. I don't know, okay, whatever. And then you have a kid and you're like, oh my gosh, what is going on right now? Like, it's, it's like there's this place you access in your heart you didn't know existed and there's this like connection to this little human being that's now like influencing you in ways you didn't even know and this love and... And, and I remember my daughter was about a year old and my first daughter, and she was, she, she had been sleeping through the night and then she stopped sleeping through the night because we had traveled, things like that. And so she'd wake up every night at two in the morning and it just was easier. We had this big California king. It was just easier to get her and to put her in bed with us. So we'd get her and put her in bed at two o'clock until like eventually she started like turning sideways and like laying like this and had a foot in my back. And like, I'm the type of guy that when I sleep, that's your side, this is my side. Like, don't touch me. And I like have my spot perfectly. In my, and so a, a, a foot in my back all night, I can't do, I just can't do it. So I finally told my wife, I'm like, I can't, I'm not sleeping well, I can't do this. We gotta figure this out. But we didn't know how to get her to sleep through the night. So I'm like, I'm gonna ask some people. So I started asking parents that had babies. I'm like, hey, you know, I'm like 22 years old, 23 years old. I'm like, hey, how do we get our kid to sleep through the night? And all of them had the same response. They're all like, oh, you got a breaker. <laughs> I was like, what? They're like, you got a breaker. It's like, she's not a horse, she's a baby. <laughs> They're like, I know, you got a breaker. And I'm like, well, okay, well, how do you, how do you break her? They're like, you gotta let her cry it out. She's got to let her cry it out. she figure it out. She may cry for three or four hours, may take three or four nights, but she'll get there. So I come home, I'm like, CJ, I guess we have to break her? And I guess we let her cry it out or something? And we were desperate. We're like, all right. So we like got on our calendar and we're like, okay, here's four nights we can do it. Break Ellie. So the first night comes around. Sure enough, she wakes up about two in the morning and I go in and she was this, she was this fat little round thing. <laughs> she's this fat little chunky baby and she's standing up in her crib crying and I walk in, I'm like, Ellie, you're a big girl now. <laughs> and big girls sleep in their own crib. They don't sleep with mommy and daddy. You need to just go to bed, okay? And I lay her down, she pops up screaming, and I walk out, I shut the door, and I go in our room, and I turn our light switch on, and we sit up in bed. We're gonna wait this thing out. Three or four hours, we're doing this. Turn on an infomercial. I turn to my wife, who's the weaker vessel, and I said, <laughs> I said, CJ, <laughs> she's not here. We can talk about this. <laughs> And I said, CJ, I know you're gonna wanna go rescue her. I know you're gonna wanna go in there. She'll figure it out. She's gonna figure it out, okay? She goes, okay. And then about 10 minutes in, Ellie's just in there. And about 10 minutes in, she starts doing something that she, she, you know, she was just beginning to talk and say a bunch of words, but she starts, to, all of a sudden she goes, wah, wah, da, 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 <laughs> 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 
and I am in my room, and I am like melting. I'm like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. My daughter needs me. And, and I'm like, CJ, I cannot believe you're this mean that you would make her cry. My daughter needs me. I'm going to go get her. And I walked in and I said, Ellie, you can sleep with us forever. <laughs> and I picked her up and I put her in bed with us and she slept in our bed for the next year. <laughs> Guys, there's a reason why Jesus, when he tells us to seek the Father, is that he describes him as the Father. He's trying to tell us, you can approach him as a father. You move his heart like a father. You are his child, and he is moved by you. He responds to you. Our prayers aren't powerful. The fact that he's a father and responds to our prayers are powerful. Like that's where this thing is. But, but there's something about, when Jesus taught about prayer, he also made it very clear. It's not just that you need to pray, it's that you need to be persistent in your prayers. It's not just those that seek him, it's those that diligently seek him. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Let me give you the definition of diligent. Listen to this. Constant in effort to accomplish something. Attentive and persistent in doing anything. Done or pursued with persevering attention. So, so the responsibility that we all carry, the personal responsibility we carry as believers is to seek God. They turned off the clock, that's amazing. Is to... <laughs> It was helping me a little bit. This is the personal responsibility we have as believers is to seek the Lord. That is not your pastor's responsibility. It's his responsibility as a believer. Right? The fivefold, the fivefold gift that he operates in has nothing to do about him seeking God. That's a, a believer's responsibility. So as believers, we begin to say, okay, it's my responsibility to seek God. It's my responsibility to press in. It's my responsibility to pray. It's my responsibility to understand him as a father. But, but it's not just that I seek him, it's that I have to diligently seek him. I have to pursue, I have to persist. I have to painstakingly go after this and pay attention to it. And what happens is, is that Jesus would come and he would say, okay, I wanna teach you about prayer. And then Luke 11, one of the most profound passages about prayer, but, but there was two stories that he would throw in. He's like, you gotta ask, because anything you'll ask in prayer, you'll receive. Ask and you receive, seek and you'll find, knock and the door will be open. That's the promise that we have. But that is attached to a story of a friend at midnight. It's attached to the fact that he goes, but let me tell you a story. A friend had somebody show up at their house at midnight. And this was extremely embarrassing in this culture if you couldn't entertain them with food, if you couldn't be hospitable to them. And so, so, so they, they came and said, I don't have any bread, what am I gonna do? And so he goes to his neighbor's house at midnight and he knocks on the door and he says, do you have any bread? And the neighbor says, go away, I'm already in bed. 
He knocks again and says, do you have any bread? Go away. He keeps knocking. He goes, my kids are in bed. But because he was persistent in knocking, the neighbor got up and gave him bread. Jesus tells another story about a persistent widow with a judge. She needed justice from this judge for her kids. And, and literally the Bible says the judge didn't fear God. He didn't, but, but because this woman just persisted, annoying him, he said, I'm gonna give you justice. This is the concept that it's not just that I'm a seeker of God, it's that I'm a diligent seeker of God. And then I'm gonna persist and I'm gonna persist. But here, do you know where persistence comes from? the revelation of God as a father. Do you want to know who the most persistent people on the planet are? Kids. I'm really sick. They will wear you down. It's ast it is astounding their ability to wear you down. I'm like, nope, nope, nope. Okay, here. Like, it's just, that's my life. That's my life. Nope, nope, nope. Okay, fine, just go away. Like... This is, this, is, this is just what it is. Because there's something in a kid, connect, well, like he, my son. My son, his love language is touch. Like my, one of my, top, top, my top love language is touch. Like touch and words of affirmation. So that's why the prophetic is so amazing. Because somebody's laying hands on me telling me how amazing God says I am. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, I feel so loved right now. So, so, so I'm pretty high on the touch meter, but, but my son is like, if, it, if it's a scale is one to 10, he's like a 12, you know? If he could, he would Velcro himself to you. So you can imagine, you know, you get home from a long day at work and I just want to sit down and watch some TV with him. So I'll sit down on the couch and I'll watch TV. All of a sudden I'm, I look and he's like draped on me. And I'm like, son, Sit over there. When <laughs> I'm watching TV, and like 30 seconds later, it's draped on me. Son, get off of me and sit over there. 30 seconds later, he's back, draped on me. Until so finally you just give up and you just kind of sit in the corner of the couch just watching TV. <laughs> there's something, there's, <laughs> it's funny because kids, it's like, my son's like, I hear no coming out of your mouth, but that can't be what you mean. <laughs> I know, I know you. I know you want me to cuddle with you right now. I know, I know. And they just keep coming, literally like, go away. Man, I hear go away come out of your mouth, but I know that means come closer. It's, it's just true, right? This is the story of the judge with the widow. You should read it. It's just fascinating to me. He said, they just keep coming. And this is why, if you really understand, this is why people that, that really understand God as a father, they just keep coming. Uh, they just keep coming. And it's confusing to people because they're like, God hasn't answered your prayer. Yeah, I know, he will. He will. I just keep knocking. Oh, he will. He'll get up. He'll get up. Trust me on this. Trust me on this. He'll get up. He's, he's going to give me some bread. I know he will. It's been a couple years. Oh, I know it's been a couple years, but yeah, he's, he's my dad. Trust me. He'll get up. I mean, the analogies break down for sure when we're talking about no, but my dad, Eric tells my dad, we just knew growing up my dad's first response was no a lot. 
And we just knew like, he'll say yes. And it's just this thing that us kids knew. Still to this day, I, I called him for something the other day. I'm like, hey, dad, uh, can you come do this? Oh, I'm just pretty busy. I don't think I can. I hung up the phone. I talked to my wife. I said, five minutes. I gave him five minutes. Three minutes later, he calls. Yeah, I'm coming. That'd be great. I think I could do it. You know, like, <laughs> he's kind of like, I know, I know. He hasn't answered yet, but he'll get up. I know he will. He'll get up. That this is the ability to be persistent, the ability to be diligent, the ability to seek him and not stop even when you don't have bread yet, even when the answer hasn't come yet, even when the breakthrough and the miracle, even when the provision isn't there yet, the ability to continue to press in, to continue to pursue him, to continue to go after God is the understanding that he is a dad and I move his heart. I move his heart. He can't help but be moved by me. I'm his son. This is why when the church individually begins to get this, breakthrough begins to happen because there's, there's something called the law of prayer. I made it up. The law of prayer or the law of the seeker. Isaac Newton, who was a physicist and mathematician and one of the great minds of the 17th century scientific revolution, one of the things he was most famous for was his three laws of motion, which one of them was this. Newton's third law states this, for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. So in the natural, if I throw a ball against a wall, there's an equal and opposite reaction of that ball. But in the spiritual and in the kingdom, the law of the seeker, the law of prayer says this. For every action, there's not an equal and opposite reaction. For every action, there is a greater and more substantial reaction. <laughs> Again, we can go through a ton of scripture on this, but one of them in Isaiah 42, uh, I don't want to read the whole, well. Isaiah 42 is calling people to worship. And it says, it says let, let the wildernesses let the wilderness and its cities lift over the voice. The villages the key to our inhabitants. Let the inhabitants of Salem sing. Listen to this. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. So, so the, the Bible says, listen, I want you to like worship and, and shout. And it says, when you shout, God stirs himself up and responds, and he shouts. But his shout is not equal and opposite to my shout. His shout is greater and more substantial than my shout. And when he shouts, his enemies are defeated. This is why, this is why I believe that, that if we're going to see revival in cities, if we're gonna see transformation in cities, it's not just a strategic of raising up leaders and, and getting strategic and setting people in place. There has to be a cry that begins to come from the body of Christ, that begins to seek God and lift up their voice. Because if we do not get an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, if we do not get God to show up in power, if we do not have a move of God in our city and in our state and in our nation, then this doesn't doesn't work out. And what I know is this, that the law of prayer says that when I lift up my voice, when I shout to God, when he calls me to shout and I lift up my shout, he responds with a shout. 
and his shout is not equal and opposite. It is greater and more substantial, and it defeats the enemies in a city. The walls begin to come down. This is, this is the beauty of the kingdom. This is the most profound thing. As kids, as sons and daughters of God, understanding this principle is so important because sometimes we think, well, it's just, you know, I, I asked a couple of people to pray and only three people came and we kind of had this little tiny prayer meeting that's not really that powerful, it's kind of pathetic, but what we don't understand is this prayer meeting <laughs> stirs the heart of God. This, this is, ask the boy that had five loaves and two fish. When he brought that to Jesus, he did not get an equal and opposite reaction. Jesus wasn't, thank you very much. I multiplied it, here's five loaves and two fish back. We, we, bring, we bring our meager lives to God. We bring our lives of prayer to God. And, and, and we're weak and we're frail and we can only gather a handful of people. But when I bring my prayer to God and when I bring my shout to God and when I seek God, he responds and cities become awakened because of my prayer that awakens him. And if we don't have that, this, this is the entire game. The entire game in this nation is will God arise and let his enemies be scattered? Will God awaken in a nation and come in such a way that changes everything? That is going to happen when the church begins to individually take responsibility that it's my job, it's my life to seek him, to come after him. I'm not looking for somebody else to do this. This isn't the intercessor's job. This isn't the pastor's job. This isn't the prayer group's job. This is my job. And it's not just that I'm seeking him in a prayer gathering, it's that my life is pointed at this, my life is geared towards this, that I'm driving in the car through my city. My heart is pursuing God. My heart is seeking God. That when I wake up in the morning, I know that my life is to seek him, it's to be about him. When I go to bed at night, my heart is awakened to this thing of, God, would you come? Man, I, I just so believe if individuals would really understand the power that they walk in, the power to move God for breakthrough. I think it's one reason why we don't pray, we just don't really actually believe it. Malcolm Gladwell, he wrote a book called The Tipping Point. It's a story of, it's a study on epidemics, good and bad epidemics and how they work and he has laws of epidemics. One of them is called the law of the few. And his whole point is that epidemics are not started by the masses, they're started by the few. It's a handful of people that start epidemics. In America, we have this concept that if we can gather enough people together, we can see revival. If we can get the masses together, revival will break out. But revival never started with the masses. Read the Bible and read history. It's, it's, it's a handful of young people to meet in Wales after a meeting and just start confessing the Lord and their sins. It's, it's a, it, I literally, read these stories. It's, it's a handful of old ladies that decided to gather in a barn in the countryside somewhere that begin to lift up their voice, that begins to stir the heart of God to show up in power. Because when I can get breakthrough, my personal breakthrough releases corporate breakthrough. This is the thing that has to get into your life that you have to begin to understand. Your personal breakthrough will lead to corporate breakthrough. And I can go through a ton of stories of this. But, but in Acts chapter 16, in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas 
they set a girl free, that's the slave girl that's possessed. They set her free. They take them, they whip them, they beat them, they chain them, they put them in the inner stocks in prison. They put them in stocks in the inner prison. And Paul and Silas, they do what they always know to do. They just begin to lift up their voice, they begin to worship, they begin to seek God. They begin to pray. And God shows up as he always does for seekers. Listen to me right now on this. God responds to seekers. He acts for those who seek him. He he is moved to action by the heart of his kids that commit themselves to diligently seeking God. But when Paul and Silas seek God, they don't just find him for themselves. This is the profound part of my life as a son of God is that I can move God's heart in such a way that when he shows up, I don't just get breakthrough, others get breakthrough as well. The Bible says that as they were worshiping, as they were praying, the the prisoners were listening. They were passively listening. They weren't engaged. They weren't praying. They weren't seeking. They were listening. But listen to what happens. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Here it is. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. This is the profound part. Paul and Silas are the only ones seeking God. And when God responds with an earthquake, it doesn't say that the door in front of Paul and Silas swung open. It doesn't say that the chains fell off Paul and Silas. It said that all of the doors opened and everyone's chains were loosed. This is the profound part that if, that if you can begin to say, God, I need you to put a burden in my heart. I want to be a seeker. I want to be somebody who pursues you. I want to be possessed by this thing. I want to wake up in the morning and say, God, like we have one hope for this nation. It is you coming. We have one hope for my family. It is you coming. We have one hope for my city. It's you coming. And, and that as I begin to pursue them, this is why I just challenge believers. Go get breakthrough in your marriage. Some of you in this room, let's just be honest, you're having a hard time in your marriage. And you're wondering, is it worth it to put in the work? Is it worth it to go after the things that I gotta go after? Is it worth it to get breakthrough? Yes. And you know what happens? When you get breakthrough in your marriage, God doesn't come and just release breakthrough to you. Marriages all across the city that weren't even seeking breakthrough begin to experience breakthrough because you decided to press in. Those of you that are dealing with sexual issues and those that are dealing, there's so many of these different things that when you begin to press in and God, I gotta get breakthrough, I'm gonna seek you. And I believe that not only can we find God, this is the issue, if you'll seek him with all of your heart, not only will you find him, but I believe you can find him for an entire generation. I believe that a company of people, and it's been proven in scripture and history, a company of people can find God for an entire city. And people that aren't even seeking God begin to have encounters in their bedroom. People that aren't even seeking God begin to feel a stirring in their heart that they've got to get to church. And all of a sudden, they're having dreams about God and their lives are different and things begin to break off simply because there's a company of people that said, we're going to commit ourselves to seeking God. I'm going to commit myself to going after him and I'm going to be a seeker. And it's not somebody else's responsibility. It's not my pastor's responsibility. It's not the guy that knows more scripture or is more talented. It's my job to pursue God. This is the confidence that we have. This is the things that we dream about. Uh, uh, An entire body of Christ in a city. 
but it starts with a handful. It starts with a few. This is what I want to be. I've always, I, it just, I, uh, since I was in my early 20s, many are called, but few are chosen. I'm like, God, I want to be part of the few. <laughs> I don't want to be part of the many. I want to be part of the few. Put me in the category of the few because it's the few that begin to get breakthrough. It's the few that begin to get you to respond. This is my prayer tonight. If the worship team's here, they can come. This is, this is my prayer right now. When I was 23 years old, Lou Engle came through, 1999. He came through the first time I saw Lou and I'd heard about him and his heart for prayer and his heart for revival. And, and I was sitting in the front row at Bethel and he began to speak and he began to speak on being an intercessor for revival. And I don't know how to describe it, but I was 23 years old sitting in that front row and I just began to feel my heart just so come alive. I, I felt like I wanted to explode inside. I could feel this fire just burning inside of me as he's speaking. He just talked about, will you be an intercessor for revival? Will you give yourself this, this vein we're talking about? At the end, he just said, hey, he said, if you want to be an intercessor for revival, I want you to come forward. I was front row, so I was first one up. Man, I just went up. I'm just laying on the steps. And, and I tell you, God just got a hold of my heart. I don't know how to describe it. I, it just, he just possessed my life. I just said, God, I want, to, I want to pray. I want to be somebody who prays. I want to be somebody who seeks you. I want to be somebody who pursues you with all of my heart. And, and just, he just came and grabbed a hold of me. This is my prayer for you. The Spirit of God lives inside of you. The Spirit of God is hungry to pray. The Spirit of God is hungry to seek God. The Spirit of God is hungry to reveal to you, you are a son, you are a daughter, you move heaven. You move the heart of God. God is moved by your prayers. God is moved by your seeking Him. My prayer tonight, sometimes we use the word burden and we think it's bad, but I have a burden for my kids. I have a burden for my children. And I'm asking that Jesus would give you the same burden. That you begin to have a burden for your city. You begin to have a burden for your workplace. You begin to have a burden for those that you know. You begin to find yourself no longer needing people to externally motivate you, but you just begin to find that the Spirit of God is beginning to motivate your life, that you begin to find yourself getting up early in the morning to seek Him. Not because you have to, not because the pastor called a season of prayer, which is fantastic, it's great, but because you just know God's calling me to seek Him. He's calling me to seek Him.